0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Welcome to Just the Right Book Shorts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and I'm joined by Billy Goldstein. We're calling this an experiment, but it seems to have developed its own rhythm. And Billy Goldstein is an author, a reviewer on NBC, and uh, my pal in um, reading. Somehow we end up being on the same rhythm. And lest you're driving when you're listening to this or or doing something like running, don't worry. All the books will be listed on the RJ Julia website under podcast. And so you don't have to write anything down. You can just enjoy this and and listen. And I'm delighted, Billy, that we'll start with you. What are you reading?
1: Well, I want to talk about a book that's just published just this week. It is one of the best nonfiction books I've read in years. It's called Time's Echo, the Second World War, the Holocaust, and the Music of Remembrance. And it's by Jeremy Eichler, who is the classical music critic of the Boston Globe. And I was stunned by this book. I I mean, I've just given the title and the subtitle, and it would sound as if it's remarkably dense or specific. You have to be a music aficionado or you have to know a lot about uh, the Second World War or military history. It is a totally accessible book. Let me tell you what it is about. It's a group biography of four composers, Arnold Schoenberg, Richard Strauss, Dmitry Shostakovich, and Benjamin Britten, and the works they wrote that were a response to World War II. And it is, as I say, a phenomenal book, totally accessible. I was riveted. I, <laughs> I I know it doesn't sound like a beach book, but I was at the beach um, and read this book in two days, including for long stretches on the beach. And what Eichler does in this book is he gives you biographies of all four composers. It's all it's under 300 pages. So that's another reason to be as surprised as you can possibly be about how he synthesizes all this into a book of such comparative brevity and total beauty. He gives you uh, the life story of all of these composers. Schoenberg was a Jewish emigre exile from Nazi Europe. Richard Strauss basically colluded with the Nazis. He was never a member of the Nazi party, but he did not distance himself and in fact gave The score of one of his most famous operas, Arabella, to Hermann Goering as a wedding present. And then Benjamin Britten uh, was a a British composer who, uh, during World War II, was a pacifist and lived for much of the time in the United States. And Shostakovich lived uh, and was persecuted in the Soviet Union. And he wrote an extraordinary. Piece of music in the 60s called uh, the Babi Yar Symphony, which is his 13th symphony about the Babi Yar Massacre. So you get these musical pieces that each of them wrote in response to World War II. Schoenberg's is a seven minute piece called A Survivor from Warsaw. Britain wrote the War Requiem. But you also get a history of how the Soviet Union, for example, looked at the Holocaust, how it erased Mm. the history of the Holocaust. In the Soviet era, and how Shostakovich, in writing this symphony, was able to push back against it, even though after a few performances, the piece of music, the 13th Symphony, was basically banned in the Soviet Union. And so it's music history, it's also a profound exploration of how the Holocaust has been memorialized in Europe, in the United States, and what the difference is between these musical memorials that each of these composers created to the losses of World War II, and what the difference is between a stone memorial. And Jeremy Eichler writing about music makes you hear these pieces Mm. of music as living things that transcend even the solidity and the opacity and the way we can ignore monuments that might be stone monuments, you know, across the street in a park. It's an extraordinary book. As I say, I read it in two days and as dense as the subtitle makes it sound, it is accessible and beautiful and and a profound exploration of the Holocaust and our memory of it. And I urge everyone to read it and you can listen to the music, you know, as you're reading it. I mean, there are extraordinary pieces of music as well.
0: Billy, you know, thank you for that. And I'm definitely going to, you know, we do this all the time. that The two of us just make each other's to-be-read piles bigger and bigger. But it's funny that you bring that up. You know, this is always the coincidence between us. In the book that I discussed in the last episode called Old God's Time by Sebastian Barry, there's a chapter... And this is set in Ireland. It's about Irish Catholics, certainly not Jews. But in this chapter, the character brings up the Kol Nidre. Mm. Now, the Kol Nidre is the song played Erev Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur being the Day of Atonement. And I consider the Kol Nidre one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. And mm. I actually listened to it outside of Yom Kippur. And it made me curious about the composer, when it was written, who was this per? I haven't done anything about it because I, I just finished the book and now you're bringing this up. It's just so Funny, because now I'm going to go on this deep dive about the composing of the Kol Nidre and who the composer is, which is not a composer whose name I knew. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to report back and, and read the book that you've just recommended.
1: I just want to say about Schoenberg's survivor from Warsaw. Schoenberg had a very complicated relationship with his Jewish heritage and at one point converted, although he then took up the Jewish faith again. Later, but the way Jeremy Eichler describes the use of the Shema Yisroel in this piece, a survivor from Warsaw, is so heartrending and chilling. I mean, it is so beautiful, and so the Kol Nidre, the Shema. I mean, the way these pieces mm. of music become something even beyond the prayer that they are by being elevated in some way by song and the the loss. And the love that they that they represent is so moving to, to read about. And even what you were just saying about listening to the Col Nidre, you know, beyond the holiday that it, you know, is is part of.
0: Well, Billy, I love I love the way you talked about music being a monument more evocative than a stone pillar mm. or form because I do think that music has that ability to sort of engage our entire body you know physically and emotionally
1: you you must read this book because all
0: right I will, will get
1: I will so much out of that aspect of what Jeremy Eichler talks about.
0: Okay, what I'm going to talk about are three books that I started and I want to spend a minute talking about what it is that might make a book that you decide immediately you can't put down because I think we've talked about how many books we both put down <laughs> that we you know we give them less and less pages to engage us. And I feel badly, you know, I feel I move them over and I say, all right, I'm going to come back to it. Or some, I say, no, th- this book doesn't have a shot in hell that I'm going to ever want to come back to it. But I feel sad about that because I think, oh my God, somebody worked hard to write this. Somebody worked hard to find an agent. Somebody worked hard to get it published and then, you know, design it and send it out. Now I give it like 10 pages and I say, eh, I don't like it. So I don't, I mean, I, I'm not thrilled that I'm that way, but there's so many great books that I figure, okay, that's my excuse. But I picked up three books in a row that I, like, I want to end this broadcast so that I can read the books and I'm going to describe them to you. And then hopefully they sustain their interest. So one book is called The Bee Sting by Paul Murray, and he wrote Skippy Dies, which I liked. He is, I think he's also an Irish writer. He is. Um, He wrote Skippy Dies and An Evening and Long Goodbyes. And this is an epic story about uh, generations of families and things, you, you know, like if you read the copy, the Barnes family is in trouble Dickie's once lucrative car business is going under, but Dickie is spending his days in the woods building an apocalypse-proof bunker with a renegade handyman. And then his wife is like selling her jewelry on eBay. I liked every character right away. I want to know what happened. So the first book I started that I'm excited about is called The Beasting. The second book, which has been on the bestseller list, And I thought, well, I'm not really interested in this book because it's about video games. I don't even get why people spend so much time on video games, which is maybe says more about me than the people who play video games. (laughs) But within a two-week period, at least a handful of people that are similar readers to me mentioned that they had read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle uh, Zevin, And loved it. So I thought, okay, Roxanne, get over yourself, pick up the book. (laughs) And I can see video games are just a device in the book. It's very much about how we deal with failure and success and relationships and how those things evolve. So that's the other book I can't wait to read. And the third book is a translation by an Argentinian writer, a woman in her eighties by the name of Aurora Venturini, who actually had met Eva Peron, the woman, the author had worked as a psychologist. And the book is called Cousins. I'll read you the first line for you to get an idea of the energy My mother was a teacher with a white uniform and pointer. She was very strict, but taught well at a school in the suburbs for not very bright children from the middle classes and below. My mother smacked naughty children over the head with her pointer and sent them to sit in the corner wearing donkey's ears she'd made out of colored cardboard. They rarely acted up twice. The wit and the energy. Some one of the reviews said she. It's a novel of depraved genius. The narrator is a young girl, and I had read a review in the Weekend Financial Times that absolutely raved about the book. It's from a small publisher by the name of um, Soft Skull, and. There's kind of a black humor about the book that I really love. It, You know, it feels foreign in the way Kafka's books feel foreign. Everything's like a little bit off and odd, but I'm totally gripped by her writing. So those are three books. I'll, I'll report back when I finish them or not finish them to see if they lived up to their very intriguing introductions.
1: Well, of course, I, I had not heard of two of the books, which I'm so excited now to to hear more about and to read myself. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow was also on my list, as I I really have to read this. To, sometimes I'm just curious about why does a book become a yeah. phenomenon that it does, even though it's not something that I had on my personal radar to read. And the the video game aspect put me off. I have the book, but one of the things I tried to remind myself of is a number of years ago I read and loved beyond belief a book called The Knicks by Nathan Hill, which had a whole video game element to the plot. And when I read the description, I thought, I'm never going to enjoy this book. And it's a phenomenal book about a mother and son and about the politics of the 60s. But the video game part was actually really entrancing, even though I've never played a video game In my life, so it is.
0: To it is in tomorrow and tomorrow. One of the things I like is I'm learning about video games. You know, in a way that I wouldn't do. I'm not going to play a video game to learn about it, but you begin to get a a sense of its appeal. And the two characters that form the basis of tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow are like slightly nerdy, misfitty charming people. So what I realize is if I think about all three of these books, they all have a hook that's related to characters I want to meet and know more about Hmm. in every instance of the three books I just talked about. So, all right, let's wrap it up, Billy, with your next book. Well, that's a perfect
1: segue. Characters you want to know more about. A book I loved and is coming out on the Tuesday after Labor Day, so it'll be available very, very soon after after this broadcast is first aired, is The Fraud by Zadie Smith. It's her new novel, and it's a historical novel. It's set in England in the 1860s, and it's about a real-life novelist now forgotten named William Ainsworth. And we have a woman who works for him, basically his kind of major domo, a woman named Eliza. And so we get his story. He was actually a friend of Dickens, although popular in his own time, as I say, is now forgotten. And there's a trial of a famous... A Victorian trial that I did not know about, but is is real. There was a man claiming to be Sir Roger Tichborne, heir to a, a large fortune. And he was supposedly drowned in a shipwreck. But then there was a man who came forward claiming to be him. And whether or not he was him becomes, you know, part of the novel. And we get that trial. And then there are all sorts of other story elements that that Zadie Smith has under control, even though when I describe them, it's going to say like, well, you know, how many more pieces can she be juggling? There's the story of a man named Andrew Bogle, who was formerly enslaved in Jamaica by the Tichborns. And then he comes in to the novel because he supports the claim of this man. And so you get all of these divisions in Victorian society between race, gender, the different powers of a wife and husband, a mistress, there's even uh, some sadomasochistic sex, which which tells about power relations. It's an extraordinary book. I loved it. It is wonderful evocation of the period. I love reading Victorian novels myself. And although this doesn't ape a Victorian novel in any particular way or try to imitate it, it does take you into that period so beautifully and One of the things that I would say to people, um, if you've not read Zadie Smith, uh, whose book, White Teeth, is, is a magnificent novel of the present day, she takes a detour into historical fiction with this book. And she wrote a marvelous, hilarious, fantastic essay for the New Yorker earlier this summer called. Uh, about her fascination and her trying to avoid Dickens. It's called On Killing Charles Dickens and how she tried to do everything while she was writing this book to avoid evoking Dickens or anything about him to to you know rely on that kind of almost stereotype of victorian fiction and and then how in the course of writing it dickens even becomes a character in her book so it's the perfect introduction to reading that and so you can find it on the web read something you know on the new yorker website and then read the fraud it's just a brilliant novel and i think coming on the day after labor day gets the fall off to a wonderful start and even though i hate to say the words labor day
0: yeah. Well, I, you know what? A couple of wrap up points to that. One is I'm thrilled to hear your review of Zadie Smith because I just adore her and am super excited about uh, getting to read that book. And here's the way I think we can un uh, or detach Labor Day is to not think of it as the end of summer. I think we have to think of it as just like a comma. <laughs> and you know, just think of think of Labor Day as like a comma and we can enjoy September as an extension of the summer. So like don't think about really wrapping up the summer. Keep that state of mind into September. That's my that's my advice to you, Billy.
1: Oh, my God. The last time we talked, you came up with the phrase, the love that had existed, which has haunted me. And now you come up with Labor Day as a comma. You have got to be, (laughs) uh, you know, the aphorisms (laughs) and sayings of Roxanne Cody need to be collected. That's all I'm saying.
0: Um, So you've been listening to Just the Right Book uh, Shorts. I've been talking with Billy Goldstein. We would love to hear from you. You can write to us at podcast at rjjulia.com. Someone had written to us because at one of our episodes, we talked about the books that were going to be published, what sounded like, you know, in the next century. And that was a fair criticism. So we will refrain from that. So we do listen. We do read these emails. uh, So by all means, write to us, follow us on Instagram, tell your friends about us, subscribe to it. And uh, remember, you can go to RJ Julia podcasts and find all the books that we've talked about. Thank you so much for listening. You know, Billy and I have a good time doing this, but we sure do hope that uh, you have as good a time listening. Thanks again. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.